Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and this week we're talking to Rick Minter of Big Cat Conversations. We're talking about big cats in Britain, something that fascinates me and I'm sure you'll all be really interested to hear that. So there's no news this week, nothing happened in the world, absolutely nothing. One thing that we have now got is a Twitter account. I was thinking about doing lots of social media and I thought let's just do Twitter and see how we go. So if you want to follow the podcast it's at tit bearded yeah that's right at tit bearded so if you want to follow us that's where i'll be posting most of my stuff i'll still post it on my normal social media channels but i'm trying not to spam that too much with podcast stuff so give that a follow anyway here's the chat with rick minter so rick welcome to the podcast hello and thank you for having me on no, well, thanks for agreeing. I've been really looking forward to this because it's one of those things that I think people forget in the UK about this. I was going to say urban legend, but obviously you're going to prove me wrong about it being an urban legend. But I think before we get into Big Cats in the UK, we should probably cover uh, your background uh, with Big Cats and, and what kind of makes you qualify to, to talk about them. Yes, OK. Well, I've had a career really in nature conservation um, editing and writing. I'm a long-term editor of ECOS, a review of conservation, sort of grey literature journal magazine that's now online and now not as active as it was, but um, that was very much an independent voice on nature conservation, sometimes challenging orthodox views with serious uh, practitioners. Then I've um, had a long career with the Countryside Commission, Countryside Agency, which is one of the predecessor bodies to what's now natural England and I was a what you might call a policy wonk somebody who analyzes policy devises policy tweaks policy and uh, so all kinds of land use and nature conservation uh, policies um, when I started moving away from the countryside agency consultancy I also and I decided to research. I'd seen a big cat um, at work unofficially. Obviously, I wasn't there at a location to, to, to watch black leopards, but I thought I saw a black leopard. But well, I, I'm sure I did see a black leopard. I was very clear for about 45 seconds in the days before mobile phone cameras were around. And I decided because I was doing writing and editing with ECOS, uh, I might have a stab at doing a book to give the subject some grounding and profile and I felt it's got to be a measured well-researched book so I spent a bit of time doing it came out in late 2011 and then that opened doors and since then a lot of my time has been spent in this parallel universe of being with people overseas and here who are good trackers who are good zoo people on big cats who are, who are good zoologists good mammal experts good nature conservation experts with an interest and I've had a sort of self-learning process for that time so researching the book and then um, uh, dabbling with the key people who have helped me uh, develop my interests and approach and knowledge of the subject. I think you've probably already answered this then but I'm just about to say are there big cats running wild in the UK but if you say you've seen one it's probably gonna be a very short answer but so because <laughs> many many people potentially might be skeptical or or don't know the, the, the facts about it so in in your yeah. in your uh, opinion, I mean, do do you think there are big cats running in the wild now, or certainly has have there been? Yeah, I certainly feel having done a book on the subject and being immersed in it and um, seeing some material that doesn't get out sometimes, and and being um, uh, contacted by witnesses and landowners absolutely routinely, 
that there is a small population and we'll come on to what the, what the candidate cats are and it's like it's consistent i think the sample size is also important so you met me jack at the Bush, bushcraft show a few years ago i did <clears throat> um yeah so i would take each time each day at the bushcraft show when there was people from the bushcraft community and and the public uh coming in i would take about 15 reports uh, in, in a stall, in an inf in information and education stall, and the education's both ways, as I was learning as well as helping other people uh, think about the subject. And it was consistent. And if I do that kind of education, information stall at other rural shows so far, anywhere I've gone to across Britain, I get the same. I get, I'm busy all day. People, some, I have to say some people walk past looking as if it's some crazy freak <laughs> show on the side, but, 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 uh, which I quite understand. But uh, many other people walk in. Some are curious. Some are aggressively sceptical. Some are mildly, politely sceptical. Some are sceptical and want to help because they think it's intriguing. But the majority are in there. It's a biased sample, of course. The majority come in because they're, some people think they've seen them. They think member of their family seen one. They think they've seen signs on their land. And these are people from all kinds of backgrounds. And a nice example would be, say, two gamekeepers coming in within the same five minutes and seeing a model, a life-size model mountain lion, also called puma and cougar, which make up about a quarter of the, of the sightings of the reports in terms of what, uh, what, what's what you can see resembling from the characteristics people report. And they just were there swapping notes for half an hour about the different um, situation in which they encountered one on their separate uh, bits of land that they are gamekeepers for. And that is really what that stall is all about. It's for those people to be able to come in and have a serious grown-up conversation about something which is a bit of a taboo subject, which isn't really got much profile and will probably remain sort of unofficial for a while. But and people are very grateful, very thankful. But of course, I'm learning all the time. So I, through processes like that that's the main process through which i would take reports but also i give talks and i go to meetings and i have incidentally briefed off the record two mainstream countryside organizations who employ a lot of staff they wouldn't want it probably well it's not yeah it's off the record so but i have been asked to brief them and you know they were long meetings with people asking questions and having a long talk about it so i've but if you look at all the times when I've done sort of outreach with the public or receive emails and phone calls as well, I've had over 1,300 reports in wow. over, just over 10 years. Um, so that's a big sample. What does that sample show? If I compare that sample with other credible people around the country who also take reports near me and beyond in different regions, different counties and, and in Scotland, it is the same. We get the same three main cats reported in good detail by people who know nothing whatsoever about them but they they don't know the names of these cats unless they look them up on the internet many do now but they report them very well and very faithfully sometimes including the the calls the vocalizations it's the not only is it the detail people go into it's the it is the character they just they describe the characteristics very well and sometimes things you think they wouldn't pick up on things like it seemed higher at the hind quarters, higher at the back end, long back legs. Um, very consistent are the long, thick tails um, of the two main candidate cats. So uh, the 
the, the three cats are, uh, the first one is um, a black panther, presumed to be the melanistic leopard, black leopard. Right. And in melanistic leopards, black leopards, two parents, two black parents will breed on black 100% as far as we know. The evidence from the Malay Peninsula, which is the main stronghold of black leopards in the world across the the distribution of leopards is that virtually all the leopards there are black and, and the local people in the Malay Peninsula call them panthers actually so and that is of course Bargira from the Jungle Book he's a leopard but he's got that black pigment pigment from the melanism which would probably be very useful if you're um, high, lurking in the shadows an ambush predator in the shadows of the of the jungle um, you don't come out in the in the open that much and you show up a bit when you do. Uh, the other location where you get a good proportion of black leopards is Java, the middle part of Indonesia. And they're two different subspecies. So if we have had by accident the release and escape of black leopards from Java in Britain, which might be from zoos, for example, and uh, black leopards from the Malay Peninsula, May perhaps uh, brought over from uh, colonial times, but certainly in collections then, and they have actually um, interbred, if you like, two subspecies interbreeding, might well create a healthy individual uh, in a perfect environment, an environment which is very moderate in temperature and very abundant in food supply for an ambush predator like that. Um, so let's move on from black leopards to, to the second candidate, Puma. Now, black leopards account for about three quarters of the sightings. And the puma, the mountain lion, the cougar is very similar in size and behavior and characteristics to the black leopard. If you sprayed a mountain lion, a puma, black, it would, it would count for a black leopard. I wouldn't, <laughs> like, I wouldn't like that job. <laughs> and uh, in fact, there is a, there's a side, a side issue of whether you can actually get melanistic pumas, melanistic cougars, but uh, that's, a, that's another debate. Um, and of course, we have an, an, uh, I would say we have an isolated population. So the genes in an isolated population of any sort of mammal can sometimes do strange things. So uh, the puma, the mountain lion, cougar, same thing. The sandy brown one from Western States of America, basically, and, and all down through to South America, is the other one that is, is reported consistently. But always in the reports, you get about 5% links type cats, right. ones which seem to be the Eurasian links. And of course, that's a very distinct cat, and it, it's very interesting that it's um, that's coincidental with the live discussion about reintroducing our former native links we'll come on to that later I yes yeah think. we're gonna we're gonna sure. mention uh links later and i think yeah. it's interesting when you when you say you're at these events and you get this skepticism because i think people sometimes lump in the the beast of bobmin or, or whatever you want to call it wherever it is with like the loch ness monster and bigfoot but of course this is very tangible. It's not. It's not a mythical creature. These are real animals, and there's very strong uh, or very uh, tangible evidence that they they were released. Or I think. I mean, I'm sure you'll tell me a little bit more about this. But a lot of it mm. was released in the 60s, wasn't it? Was it the the Pet Act or something? They, they, before then, they Dangerous they, Wild Animals Act. Yeah, that, I will come on it. to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what I would say, sure. I, I yeah. In in relation to what you've just said, I think it's it's not like it's weird. It's not. Um, <laughs> it's not. Um, 
a preposterous thing to say that there could be at any one time in Britain the odd few vagrant cats. They are mammals that have gone feral, that have got out of captivity. Yeah. I, I think what is the really intriguing issue and where it would be nice to advance to a more scientific uh, debate and discussion is how come we have absolutely consistently in wide um, geographical areas across the country ongoing reports of these animals still sometimes more than one sometimes mother and cub how come in a few decades they seem to have established a small possibly viable population that is the intriguing radical issue to discuss i think now i don't think even the hardened skeptics would say you could occasionally um, or did, would deny that you could occasionally have a vagrant cat out there. It's whether they're breeding and whether they have adapted and whether they're naturalizing. But what I would say is, so we've got this very big ongoing sample. Uh, of those, say, 1,300 people, and year on year this is the same, I always reckon that 80 to 90% of the reports are credible. Okay. Obviously, you filter them. You, people will only come to you, I think, also, if they trust you and think you're the right kind of person to relay this to and discuss it to. And some people want moral support when they, when they relay it to you. Some, so very often I'll be around a farm kitchen table or a business um, uh, table where there's a, prop, a business that's got land and property or a utilities porter cabin where there's activity going on and the people managing that bit of utility land are saying, you know, reporting this stuff and wanting a quiet word. And it's always with the conditions, please don't tell anyone else, we do not want this land blighted, we do not want um, trophy hunters, we do not want hassle, we do not want media invasion. So you're constantly keeping it quiet. Uh, but what I would come back in terms of the sample and, and the cats now there how depending how you want to classify cats in the wild across the world there are 40 or 39 cat species so across our sample we are only getting three absolutely consistently consistently year on year and people can report them extremely well they report the signs as well and also, I would say about 20% of the reports, it's a horse or a dog as well that are spooked and bugged and are reacting. So if, if the skeptic wants to say, oh, these are missightings, the people, these people are seeing dogs or these people are seeing feral cats at the wrong scale, which I think is the main reason for missightings actually sometimes. Uh, then horses and dogs are part of the the people who are getting it, the, the, the creatures that are getting it wrong, the witnesses who are, are getting it wrong. I think horses and dogs are normally very good witnesses. <laughs> they often, the reaction of the horse or the dog normally alerts the person in the first place because they say, I've never seen my my dog react like that. I've never seen it make that stop still and go to the ground or, or worried or cower behind me or make that noise. Same with horses. You know, sometimes people are riding a horse and they say, I, it was quivering and shivering so much. I thought it was going to have a heart attack or something. And I looked up and there was a mountain lion 20 meters in the woodland edge, which I probably wouldn't have seen had the horse not reacted like it. So there's something going on. There are an abundant number of Facebook groups uh, establishing all over the country we do not have that you know we haven't got people consistently reporting wolverines or hyenas or flamingos out in the wild but we, no. this is ongoing and uh, maybe it deserves some scrutiny and investigation 
So as of 2020, are you are you still getting reports uh, like now? Are, they, uh, are you getting reports this year that, that people are seeing big yeah. cats? You are? Yeah, wow. I'll be, okay. yeah, I'll be up at 4.30am uh, tomorrow morning with my son with a thermal camera following up a report from a, a lady last week who reported one in a prominent location on the Cotswold Edge in, in um, Gloucestershire. And it's only 20 minutes from me. And I'm not expecting, by the way, to, to uh, achieve anything. But you've got to follow up, really. If it's so close, you're, it's, you know, you're neglecting your duty. And, and also, it's good to, to, for the witness to know that you are following up and doing something. She was a complete sceptic. She saw one. So, yeah, the witness lady um, reported a Black Panther. Uh, and then in the same location, reported a Muntjac carcass, which from the photograph looked very credibly large carnivore impact and shame she didn't retain the carcass because it would have been nice to look at and possibly even swab for the saliva of the culprit. And obviously when you find a carcass like that, um, you go through a checklist and we can come on to that later when we talk about the types of evidence. But just as an example, yes, there is there are credible reports ongoing. And every year, if you look at the, the data, the reports um, increase from, say, November to February. And we think that's because the animals, well, it's easier to see animals in the landscape in the wintertime, isn't it, when the, the cover's down, yeah. grass and leaves are down. But we think it may be actually due to the activity of the animals as well. It may be that they're more bolder to get their prey uh, uh, and deer are, are more vulnerable. But there's some pattern there, certainly. We, we do get an increase in reports pretty regularly most years from uh, November to February in the colder months. This year we didn't for the first time for ages and I think it was because of the relentless rainy months we had in the past year in the past winter and autumn just gone. I suppose as well it's that in the winter they need more calories maybe as well they need more food to keep warm so uh, maybe yes. they hunt more I don't I don't I don't know but I know that all the cats that you mentioned as well can survive in well can survive in that sort of in a british climate like they're from north america or leopards or, uh, i think they're the most adaptable big cat in the world and obviously european yes. lynx you know they survive in europe so our climate is yeah. is perfectly suitable for them isn't it yes yes i think it's uh, it's temperature re regulation you probably i mean the, a, a cat will rest for the majority of the day but in a cold temperature it's not so convenient to rest and, and so body temperature regulation you want to be a bit more active but certainly um, leopards pumas and lynx are generalist cats they do not have any special characteristics which would mean that they uh, couldn't um, adapt well in britain they are really um, resourceful generalist cats say if if the black cats here were jaguars were black jaguars and not black leopards then black jaguars are a bit more specialist they're a bit more heavy duty we would have uh, witness reports of them swimming at water's edge and taking bigger prey they would be able to a big tom jaguar would, would be able to attack a horse sometimes they would risk attacking a horse they would risk attacking cattle sometimes but that's very rare in britain we do get some uh, some horse attacks sometimes and some who, that have been verified by vets as well so i think right. it is pointing to those three those three cats as the candidates that are um, establishing themselves here, but I think in very low numbers. And I mean, I mentioned briefly earlier about the the whole them being ex pets from the sixties. Is that mainly where they came from then? Like where, because that's where people are going to ask that like, where, where have these big cats come from? 
I, I think there's been a range of episodes that have led to them leaking out, basically. And I think it would have started perhaps in wartime. They are strict carnivores. They're obligate carnivores. They can only eat meat. And if you had a collection in wartime, you really would have struggled to feed them. And people, um, I gather, let dogs out in wartime. So I think the first releases perhaps happened wartime. I think we certainly had uh, uh, testimonies of releases in 1976 following the Dangerous Wild Animals Act when you then had to have a, there was a licensing system for keeping uh, dangerous wild animals as, as pets in houses and in domestic situations. And that was far more onerous then to keep, keep those animals. And there were many wildlife parks and zoos got asked if they could take them in. And there are, there are sort of testimonies of, of people releasing them. And an another, uh, reason might be that they were used as guarding animals for scrap metal dealers in particular there's various um <laughs> is that right um explanations of that yeah so absolutely yeah, so rather yeah. than and, a and, rather and, than a german shepherd <clears throat> someone's got a leopard cooped yeah. up in their scrapyard yeah i think <laughs> you know if you're um yeah if you're in that kind of informal economy and yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah yeah, yeah. i work in the gray area i don't doubt it yeah it's just good not something you'd yeah. expect but i guess you know that would put you off nicking something uh, bloody great big leopard yeah. <laughs> and again we know that people had them for guarding and butchers as well have had them for, for guarding animals so some of these sort of owners would have been pretty lawless anyway okay uh, same thing happened in australia in australia some of the mines were guarded if people had a mining claim they had uh, a guarding black leopard or, or so the black leopards and pumas are reported in australia same kind of issues there and um, military mascots as well. Uh, again, Australia and Britain claims of uh, release pumas. Americans, American air bases and things had uh, mountain lion brought across sort of cubs. Kit, uh, well, mounted, they're called kits actually for mountain lions, pumas, cougars. Uh, so a variety of um, possible reasons for releases. And I think since the Dangerous Wild Animals Act, there's also a Zoos Act in 1981, and that was clamping down on the sort of leaky ramshackled wildlife parks of the time. And so I think there have been, uh, and even times of um, recession, I think if, if, you, if you're keeping these animals and the money runs out, you know, there's, it's an expensive interest to have. And I think sometimes people have just decided, you know, the cuddly kitten's grown up and it's become expensive. And if it's not too feisty and you think it's not too much um, of an issue, you might think about releasing them if you you can't face um, having them put down or you can't find somebody uh, who's got the money to take them on. So all kinds of possibilities for different episodes of releasing them and each time that of course would add to the gene pool wouldn't it? So it's not like there was one small founder stock. Yeah and that's really interesting. I, I just assumed that it was one kind of mass release but it's interesting that you say that every it's almost every 20 or 30 years someone's dumping a new load of big cats so that's really interesting that there's there's different genes as you say coming in which is going to help help with inbreeding and, and whatnot in terms of of evidence what what is the main evidence because obviously we'll come on a little bit in a second about why why it's hard to get really good photos of them but it, it's mm. not so much clear photographic evidence but you're finding you mentioned carcasses and things like that what, what kind of things are you finding that's leading you to think, oh, this, this is a big cat that's done this? Well, let's go through the sort of spectrum of the types of evidence quickly, because at the top is uh, the, pr the best primary evidence, things like a body or uh, DNA or close-up video 
And then you get to things like vet verified carcasses, and then you get to things like tooth pit analysis, which we'll explain in a second. And then you get onto the secondary evidence, things like ongoing sightings and how credible the sightings are, but large sample size helps that sort of, that's obviously much weaker evidence, but a large sample size really helps bolster that point. But also the field signs, the, the, the droppings, the footprints, the tree scratches. So let's now go back up that scale. So the field signs are the ones where it's, you're not going to find them just by going out willy-dilly into the countryside, start tracking and hope to get somewhere. You, you really are dependent on a witness or an informant guiding you to their land or guiding you to the area where they've seen something and then checking it and thinking, is this valid or not? And unfortunately, a lot of those kinds of field signs are ambiguous. You so often have to say, I'm not quite sure. And I tend to give people sort of percentage uh, ratio towards cat or against cat uh, but often people aren't satisfied with being not sure <laughs> so it's it is very frustrating but I think once you've got somebody who wants to be an informant it's nice to have them um, connected because they might invite you back with something which is much better a year later or something so it's all about being tr trusting and validating if you can um, and if you just scoff at people you're not going to get their interest and engagement and, part, and they're not going to be able to help you out in future when it might be uh, not a false alarm. Uh, I think amongst those field signs some of the ones that I think <clears throat> where you can give a good checklist on is a deer kill, is a deer carcass. Um, and they are very clinical for a cat. You can only really make a judgment, I think, on ones that are really fresh overnight sometimes. And sometimes the witness will phone you up and you'll get it, uh, I'll send you a photo and you'll get a, a, a view really quite quickly as to whether it's worth going to the scene if you're close enough or get some, getting somebody else there. And so there's a, there's a checklist that you go through. But the, uh, one of the key factors is that because they are, obligate carnivores, they're straight meat eaters, they can't eat a wild ungulate stomach because it's full of uh, grassy vegetation and so they do actually separate the stomach um, as they're shearing through to the soft organs to prioritize the soft organs to eat first. So if right. the stomach is neatly laid on the side it's a really big tick in favor of big cat. Uh, the other thing you're looking for is dispatch marks, especially the, the one of the key dispatch mark signs is the, the canines clamped at the windpipe. And of course, a dog can do that. Some dogs can bring down deer and will kill them like that, just like a big cat will. But the dog wouldn't normally then shear into the carcass very neatly and efficiently and tidily and consume half or three quarters of it. The other dis dispatch mark sign is what we call a, a muzzle hold, um, where it's clamping over the mouth to suffocate there. Sometimes they do that on bigger prey, and sometimes you will see the muzzle round the snout really chomped away. And you think, hang on, yeah, that was a muzzle hold, and there's no clamp marks at the windpipe, so that's another dispatch sign. So you're looking for the dispatch sign at the scale of a, of a big cat's one, I would say the canine impacts four or so centimeters apart and then though that consumption pattern and the stomach out as well sometimes the, sh the, the ribs absolutely sheared through foxes will tend to chew the, the rib end so and you're distinguishing trying to distinguish felid impacts from canid impacts of all the time of course the other type of moving up to the primary in uh, evidence. Now a, a low grade type of primary evidence is what's called tooth pit analysis. That's being 
uh, led, some work on that is being led by the Royal Agricultural University has been there for several years. And there are students now there, several, several um, years worth of students in past years have done work in the lab and done backup other work on big cat evidence. Uh, and so there are, there are students leaving um, Royal Agricultural University with degrees where their main key dissertation has been big cat evidence, especially tooth pit analysis. Now, tooth pit, uh, a tooth pit sign on, on a bone on the skeletal remains is, uh, there can be several types, but, but you can get a shearing on the bone, you can get a canine hole or you could get pits from the from the cusp the sharp cusps of the back carnassial teeth if you get a triangle pattern if you get all three from one of the back carnassials you can actually gauge forensically the pattern and match it to the uh, a cat the scale of a leopard or a puma and that's what you're after and that will be different from a wolf or a large dog uh, carnassial in the same set in, in the same system in, in the dentition of, of a canid. So felid and canid dentition has evolved a little bit differently and so it's a, a way of um, checking marks on the bones which might be there in older uh, skeletons and skeletal remains that are there. And but we have now people looking for those and we have some sheep farmers occasionally who um, get sheep impacts and and uh, we had one this year in Scotland set they'd listened to the podcast they'd heard about my, the podcast I do on big cats and they'd heard about tooth pit analysis and they'd thought that they had a big cat predator on their land occasionally taking the sheep and said we've got some marks on the bones just like you were talking about sent them to the lab and it's been verified as one of the uh, 16 samples now that's been verified in that process in the lab in the last five years with different samples from deer mainly, sheep, wild boar in the Forest of Dean and now Scotland and some have just come through from Cumbria recently. Uh, so there's a nice geographical spread and there's a good number and we've always said that because I helped that study at the Royal Agricultural University that a, um, an academic paper would be published and of course the bigger the sample is on something like that and the wider geographical spread the samples are from the sort of more robust the the case is so that's a nice bit of work on the uh, in the sort of low-grade primary evidence um, now in terms of bodies if we go right to the top of the scale uh, some somebody recently uh, had heard my podcast and emailed me and said uh, I've got a shot one, a stuffed shot one. Um, I've never told anybody, but here's a photo of it. And the way it's uh, now, I can't, I, I will show that at my talks and people, you know, in the pub on my laptop and that sort of thing. I'll show the photo and I've been invited to go and see that stuffed one. And it is a, it's a three and a half foot long melanistic leopard, a female one with a sort of, you can see the sheen on the, 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 the sort of gray sheen to the black fur. And the way it's been mounted by the taxidermy, taxidermist does suggest it's British because the, 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 I won't go into detail for the sake of the, infor, the, the, the provider of, the, of that information, but there's a key sign that it is a British cat uh, in, okay. in, in the way it's being mounted and presented. So there, I can't, you know, I can't sort of absolutely verify that as one that's, that, that's a body shot in Britain that's, you know, presented as, you know, hard evidence, but uh, you know, that has been shown to be the photos are very credible. I've been invited to see it and the story behind it is very interesting. So there's a body. There would be other bodies that uh, I've been shot I, and I have had several claims. Uh, they may not all be true, but I don't think maybe perhaps they're all not um, fabricated perhaps as well. Um, and of course, if people shot one 
as a gamekeeper or as a farmer, whatever, they would probably shut up and bury it. And that, that's what that seems to have happened. They're, yeah, um, they're not they're not going to shout about it, are they? No, I think you. Um, I think you know they worry about comeback and that sort of thing. But I have also had a good many deer stalkers and game sector people tell me that they've seen them in their scopes very clearly, but felt that some of them didn't want to shoot them because emotionally they, they thought it was a fantastic animal very interesting animal and didn't think it was their place to shoot it other people said you know didn't was worried about the comeback and other people said wasn't sure some other guys have said oh if i were when i was younger i probably have shot it but you know i just enjoyed watching it and those are all types the puma the, the lynx and the black leopard uh, uh, in terms of bodies on the road i think the, the most it's not like you're gonna easily find a, a, a dead one that's sort of just petered out in life because they cats tend to die under cover um, there aren't going to be many bodies because these are long-lived animals you know 12 to 15 years there aren't many of them and they die under cover anyway so bodies are going to be difficult to locate and find um, but occasionally I think the police do get asked to recover one and we had um, in Gloucestershire a fair few years back one where there was a witness report of, of an incident outside a, a house in, in on the edges of Gloucester and one was allegedly hit and killed and police phoned and it, uh, the, the road was shut off for three hours and it was recovered a white van turned up and whatever and that was from a witness now a couple of years later when a police officer who might have known something about that was uh, had an informal chat with one of my best sort of contacts on, on the subject here in Gloucestershire. He completely verified the story. Uh, and oh, he, okay. he clarifies, he, he went on to clarify some of the points. Uh, I won't go into the full detail, but you're not going to get the police to issue a press release about that. Uh, you know, I don't blame the police for doing that sort of thing. It is very difficult. You know, what do you do? What do you say? Um, and we just found out about it informally, but there was co complete corroboration. What I will say is that the, the witness, uh, his, the damage on the car, the police fixed because they realised he wouldn't be able to make an insurance claim. But uh, so other ways that people keep under the radar about this, I have um, twice been with vets when they verified carcasses, uh, uh, sheep carcasses and but that, again, vets do not want to go on the record about this. Uh, on the podcast I do, we've just had a, a lady who had a horse attack and the impacts on the horse are very credible and, and really do seem to match the, the sort of raking you'd get down the flanks of a horse if, a, if a, something like a leopard or a puma jumped onto the back of a horse and the vet verified that and said, yeah, absolutely nothing else could have done this. And the horse was very, very freaked out and, and spooked for another couple of weeks. It took, you know, took a while to get over that. So, But you can, you're not going to get these people to go on the record about that sort of thing you know they see it as potentially you know impacting on their reputation but um occasionally yeah. people are exposed to that so it's it's very much this sort of undercover unofficial world that you get drawn into and you know i'm constantly looking at the bigger picture but everybody else that i'm in touch with of course is just seeing this one-off case that's affected their locality yeah well of course the other thing is that when you take certainly leopards uh, all across the world and you know there's leopards in Mumbai and, and quite densely populated areas and yet people very rarely see them even where, where leopards are relatively common because they're so secretive and elusive so when people say well why don't more people see these these big cats if they if they are present in the UK that they're, they're going to stay out of the way they're not going to be out in the open are they? 
Yes, in their native countries, people rarely see them. I, I go to Western states of America more to, in relation to Puma, mountain lion, cougars, more than I go to places that have leopards. And when I um, I'm with the practitioners, the, the rangers and researchers and wildlife biologists who deal with uh, mountain lions, they see them all the time because they're, they're, they're following radio collared ones. But if you speak to somebody in the hotels and restaurants and uh, a normal citizen in Colorado or Utah or whatever, they, they've never seen one or, or if a member of their family or somebody they know has done, it was a big event. You know, they don't, it's not really a high profile animal in the Western states, even though there are sort of 30 to 40,000 of them, but you, you wouldn't expect to see one. I liken it a bit to to otters here. I mean, you're a fisherman, I gather, and, and you're at the waterside environment a lot, so you, you obviously see otters, but as a, the average British citizen would not expect to see an otter in their lifetime, really, or, or have no. a encounter. No, they're, they're very elusive. There I mean, are... yeah, I've, I've only seen them a handful of times, even when I'm looking for them. So, yeah, the general public are very lucky to see something like that. Yeah, and I think these... Um, as you say, Mumbai is the classic about leopards, um, but other parts of India, um, uh, and they can, if one has a territory, both mountain lions and leopards, if they have territories in or close to urban areas or urban edge areas, again, they're often hardly ever seen. I mean, there's a classic case of uh, a, a big tom mountain lion that has a has part of his territory around the hills uh, that skirt around the Hollywood studios where the Hollywood sign is. And there's a very, sorry, there's yeah. a very famous picture by Steve Winter. I think it's Steve Winter's the photographer. And it's this um, mm. mountain lion with the Hollywood sign in the background. Is that what, is that the same cat? Yeah, pro- that's it. Pro- yeah. yeah. Yes, there's only one there. P22, Puma 22 is his okay. sort of, um, is his code name. And they only know about him really because he's radio collared. And they know that he, uh, has a, a territory that is adjacent to a quarter of a million people yet he's hardly ever seen he doesn't cause many issues or hardly any issues unfortunately he is sort of landlocked by all the highways and I was asking some uh, people on mountain lions in America last time I was there will he ever breed and they said no he, there are no females within his territory that he could get access to and he'll probably die on, a, on the freeways you know passing over the multi-lane highways in America to tr- try and get to uh, broaden his territory to encompass some females like he should be doing um but you know he's just landed up in that awkward situation but you know he's it's all intents and purposes an invisible big cat an invisible puma a large one but not causing much bother so they do you know they do skulk away i think they're very shy and nervous of humans we're we're bother and hassle to them and if we're not stressing them and if they're not stressed and they've got plenty of food they'll stick to what they know and not take risks I guess the big question is, oh, it's a two-layer question. Firstly, is there any idea of, of how many of these big cats there are? And I guess what people will be wondering is, if there are these big cats present in, in Britain, are they a potential threat to people? In terms of the numbers, it's <clears throat> very much, I mean, a lot of this is speculation. I do yes, appreciate yeah. that. And I do, we're always wanting more and better evidence. In terms of the numbers, how do we reckon, how do I reckon, Uh, I've got a handle on the numbers. Well, what I would say in the big sample I have and the ones that keep coming in now through local newspapers and Facebook sites, and not all of those are credible, I think it it really does help to have the report directly to you and speak to the the person themselves before you gauge whether how credible it is. But I would say the majority of these reports of the three cats, uh, they are reporting cats which seem to be confident, healthy, fit, 
and wised up to living in Britain. They don't seem to be reporting uh, very often, and, and a case like this will stand out, a bungling one that isn't melting away easily. Sometimes people will say it was so easy to see and it was so um, unsure of itself and so seemingly bewildered, it seemed to be a recent released one, a recently a one yeah. that seemed to be coming to terms. Now, 99% of the reports are ones there where they are arrogant, you know, walking, walking around as if they own the place uh, and seem to have been grown up here. They know what they're doing. They're fit, confident, healthy cats. So to, so to have um, that amongst the, the population of cats here, from what I've read and what the feedback I get from people who know about the genetics, and, and certainly if, if the population numbers, if you're establishing something like lynx uh, you'd want to get to 200 plus if you get under 200 plus you worry about 200 you worry about the sort of viability so i have to think that because we're not seeing hardly ever a reported cat with signs of inbreeding that we have got we, we've overcome that that sort of genetic bottleneck that that inbreeding issue so have we got 250 each of the black leopards, the American mountain lion type, and, and the lynx type? Don't, not so sure about the lynx because the sample size isn't so big. The, the numbers, the proportions aren't so no. big. But, uh, but, so I, but in terms of breeding itself, people report females on heat. The puma on heat, the female puma on heat is a very distinct sign and a call, and people report them without knowing what it is, but they do report them. And sometimes people report mother and cubs, and it's very emotional. People are very reticent to report usually anyway, and even more so if it's a mother and a cub scene. Sometimes people see two adults together. And they, again, they, the, the emotional impact when you're dealing with a witness like that is much more profound than the emotional impact of, of um, other reports. So I think there's, there's, whether the breeding and the population will be viable in <clears throat> decades to come is another matter but certainly i think now that you know there seems to be i would say they are slowly naturalizing and also i would say 250 ish of these each of these types of cats across the whole of britain is actually not many you you wouldn't expect to see them very often and there may be more maybe a few less but i, I think that's my sort of stab at the numbers now in terms of impacts on people well it's funny, I think because we think, oh, they're a large carnivore, we think of them as a snarly beast. But of course, they're not snarly beasts. They're, they're shy and wary of us. And most of the witnesses report their natural behavior, which is to arrogantly see a human uh, and maybe their dog and think, you know, that's trouble. I'm just going to slowly waft away. And they just drift away and melt away. They don't sort of charge off like a fox does. No. Um, they sort of assess the uh, and again it's another reason why a lot of these witness reports are so credible they are really reporting how the animal behaves in the wild very well once every year and a half you'll get a report where somebody has had a, a bit of a scary encounter it's been really close the cat they has been really close to them um, or the cat has seemingly been eyeing up their dog yeah and you know, obviously that does freak people out so uh, but even most of those people who have been scared or feel that they were they were stalked a bit perhaps they have normally been protective of the cats a lot of people you know, do do th admire these animals uh, they're very charismatic very beguiling but they also feel um they almost feel sorry for them and, and protective of them not always but i would say the majority of people are tolerant, if not positive, about them. 
and we can come on to their impacts on the ecosystem if you like but uh, but uh, you know a lot of the people a lot of people actually think it through and think well hang on if they're culling deer if they're keeping the foxes down if they're uh, stacking on bunnies all the time and they're hardly ever going for our pets and hardly ever going for sheep then maybe you know they're an asset in the ecosystem and the benefits outweigh the, the problems so people do think it through very responsibly in the main i find yeah no i mean we haven't had you know top level carnivals in britain for for hundreds and hundreds of years so the ecological benefits of that are obviously uh, quite beneficial as you mentioned you know deer, deer numbers and and things like that is is there a hot spot in the i mean i know you might be reluctant to give away exact locations but is there an area of the uk where you would say there are more sightings uh, that, than others i know you mentioned you're you're based in gloucester and you get reports there locally yeah it's that's a difficult one because i think like a lot of issues in in bio, field biology and zoology and probably lots of other recording factors uh, whatever the factor is that you're taking records of and taking data about i think it's prone to what is called the record effect so you get a, a higher incidence of reports where you've got trusted people who are on the case and known and have a facebook site or have a have a presence in the in the locality and are trusted through the grapevine so we get a fair amount of ongoing reports in Gloucestershire but then there are there's me and a, and a buddy and, and our network of people who are on the case and known about largely um, so it's a very difficult one but certainly it, let's take Gloucestershire as an example now I would say we have the Forest of Dean which is yielding ongoing reports we have the Stroud Valleys and the Cotswold edges down that way which is uh, some of those are very wild and and deep and, and, and wooded and, and, and stuffed with deer uh, so there's that area there's the Cotswold Water Park the old sort of worked out um, sand and gravel pits um, area with lots of water birds and, and lots of easy pickings for a cat and, and, and a canal routeway as well and we have parts of the Cotswolds themselves all of which yield reports year on year on year but we have other parts of the of Gloucestershire particularly where I live where you hardly ever get reports in their native countries their territories tend to be in patches you get you get a sort of a splodge of territories and then you get nothing and you might get a young male dispersing from one of those clusters of territories to another and of course that helps the overcome the inbreeding issue so I would say that um, I think I would know uh, in the sort of uh, five miles in all directions from me if there were big cat reports and we hardly ever get them and if we do get them it's sort of you get two or three in in a month and you think hang on you know this is interesting we, we've suddenly got a little episode kicking off here maybe there's one passing through because they're credible and these people don't know each other I, I would say we've gone you know the Forest of Dean Stroud Valleys um, Cotswolds Water Park parts of the Cotswolds are ongoing you know hot spots in in Gloucestershire and uh, there will be the same elsewhere but let's say Lincolnshire a flat fairly bland in terms of landscape features and and cover for a cat uh, Lincolnshire does yield reports now the reports that we're getting from Lincolnshire it seems to be that they they use the 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 field edges and the, and the crops in India leopards like sugarcane and they'll have small territories when they're in the sugarcane of course plenty of rodents and small mammal prey in sugarcane landscapes so again it's back to what you said jack they're very adaptable very resourceful animals so their territories might vary depending on the terrain and the landscape 
whichever thing they would like woodland and the woodland edge where the deer are but it's and i think that that's certainly the case in gloucestershire and the sort of um steeply incised valleys where you know there there aren't many people and, and the, the deer are the deer are can be targeted but if, if we're getting reports in credible reports in lincolnshire in cropland you know it does rather prove they can pretty much live anywhere I can't remember if I mentioned to you actually, but my mum and my grandma uh, claim that they saw a big cat in Devon, and this was about fifteen years ago now. So they were driving home mm-hmm. from. Um, we were staying in uh, North Devon uh, at a fishing lakes actually, and they they were coming home at night, and they claimed this big cat, big black cat, came out, stood mm-hmm. in the middle of the road, stared at them, and then skulked off into the bushes and. It's one of those. Uh, I, I know my mum's comp. She's not. She's not particularly into wildlife, but she knows what a domestic moggy is and and what a big cat mm-hmm. is. And she's always maintained that uh, that she saw the beast of Bodmin, or or it was a bit further away from <laughs> Bodmin. But you you get my meaning. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was sure. kind of her story from it. They, mm. You know, they turning up. I, I'm going to end on one last question for you, Rick, and that is your thoughts on bringing links back because of course i can't remember if it's hundreds i think it's only hundreds of years ago since they, they were in the uk but they were a uh, native 1500 1500 yeah. okay uh, 1500 so, years ago ish yeah so so you know in the in the grand scheme of history that that's not that long certainly ecologically it's not so they we would have had these these predators do you think that there is uh, a room for links to be back in the uk i mean certainly people always talk about bears and wolves and whereas um, I'm all for reintroduction and, and I love rewilding. I'm not sure if bears and wolves are the way to go just because of the practicalities. But but lynx make a lot of sense to me and I'd love to see lynx back. But I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts uh, on bringing them back. If I put my sort of hat on as I was in a previous sort of life as a sort of policy advisor and, and devising policies and, and bringing all the sort of additional support measures you would need if a new policy came out, then I would be thinking... Well, if we're going to do this, we need everybody on board. So we need lots of um, participation of all the communities and all the kinds of professional organisations and, and, and groups, uh, professional groups that are going to be affected and influenced. So we want them to understand why this is being considered and how they'd be affected, how they hopefully might benefit from it and how they could be assured that any troubleshooting and tweaking of the approach was going to happen and going to be done. So I have had farmers and, and game sector people walk into my big cat information tent sometimes in the past few years, sort of uh, being okay about the big cats that they see, but ironically, really not so keen on reintroduced links. And so, but if I say to them, well, what about if you influence the whole process and your your professional bodies that you're members of that you you respect were in on the inside of the whole system so if they weren't happy with what was going they could help tweak it or stop the pilot uh, project approach or if there was one problem individual and don't forget they will be radio callers so if there's a problem individual you can hopefully intercept it and bring it out of the project and that does calm them down quite a lot. So I do think it's the way, you, I know this sounds terribly diplomatic and terribly sort of wishy-washy, <laughs> but I think it's right. Everybody's got to be on board. I, d- I really don't feel it should be forced on people. You've got to do all that preparatory work. And 
I would put the people who you think might be most against it, I put them on the inner, inner circle of making it, you know, of charge with the, res the responsibility of doing it. If, if they are content that all the boxes are ticked about how to go about it and, and any troubleshooting. So that, in terms of procedurally, that's what I would do. But in terms of conceptually, yes, I don't think it's, it's an issue. You wouldn't, you'd hardly see them. People, people would probably get frustrated. that they. I, I went to a talk on, on Link's reintroduction in Scotland uh, last year, and I can't remember the name. Uh, Scotland, the big picture. I don't know if you've come across them. Someone, oh, David Hetherington, probably. That, that's David it, yes. Hetherington, was yes, it? yes, yeah. that's right. He did the talk, and he was saying there's a national park somewhere. In, I can't remember whereabouts in Europe, but they've got like the links as their logo. But the ironic thing is, no one sees that. There's there's a relatively healthy population, but very few people. It's the Harz Mountains. Is this there the Harz Mountains in quite Germany. possibly, yeah. quite possibly? So you know more. Well, yeah. I, I would expect you to know more than me, Rick. But they they <laughs> they they push links as a tourism device. People are like come and see the links. But the the reality is, you're incredibly unlikely to see a links. And I think. Like you say, if they were reintroduced to the UK, you'd be so lucky to see them. I guess it's like Scottish wildcats. I know, I know their population is very yeah. low, but how often do people ever see Scottish wildcats? Incredibly rarely. And I, and I think the yeah. same case would be with lynx. Yeah, cat, I mean, lots of mammals are elusive, aren't they? Pine mice yes. would be difficult to see, uh, yeah. for example. Yeah. But I think the cats are, are super elusive as an ambush predator. Uh, these ones are uh, they're not like cheetahs you know cheetahs run their prey down under uh, on open ground so you might see a cheetah but you won't you'll be terribly lucky to see an ambush predator like a, a puma or a black leopard or, or a lynx so I, I was um on a field trip about on, on lynx a few years ago and the, the guy who was radio collaring them uh, in this location on the um in bavaria where they've been brought back i said to him how often do you see one in the wild that you're not intercepting that you haven't sort of um, had to go and intercept and he said i've been doing this for seven years i'm in the heart of their of several of their territories and i've only had three glimpses in seven years uh, <laughs> and so that shows you you know that, and he's looking for them so yeah ecologically and in terms of in the ecosystem no problem you know that the ecosystem could take them and would benefit from them and i think most people see that it's it's can you can you get everybody on board satisfactorily I, I do think that's really got to be done and i think the benefit of of them over the ones that are the, the wild ones we have that i would claim are naturalizing already uh, is that these would be radio collared and we'd know where they were going which would be yeah. lovely because we, we you know we rack our brains thinking where where are these black leopards going and how big are their territories you know perhaps anything from five square miles to 50 square miles but and a lynx would probably have around 10 square miles if you know in perfect conditions with a good range of prey and everything so it would be fascinating to be able to see the telemetry data of, of a radio collared uh, larger cat in britain so uh, I, well i think the other issue is how would they get on with the cats that are here already the ones that are, you know i am um, uh, uh, proposing are here and naturalizing and i think with the other links that would just be uh they would interact and breed with them and so that would widen the gene pool anyway yeah. and they would have to learn to work around the bigger cats that might they might find troublesome um that would be ste you know, that would be stealing their prey sometimes or even 
um, dispatching one if it was a problem. But they tend to, I think they're, you know, they're pretty savvy and they tend to sort of work around each other. But I don't think there's ever really going to be that number, that that bigger number of the the the, the naturalising pumas and the naturalising black leopards to be that much of an issue for a reintroduction programme of lynx. No, well, I I can't remember the exact number, but when when I went to that talk with David, it wasn't like huge numbers of lynx that, that because being a top predator, you're not going to introduce loads and loads of them. I mean, it was oh, I'm trying to rack my brain. It was something like he proposed ten or or or, or maybe it was a little bit more than that, but it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't loads of them. It was like just a few, and then I guess you see yeah, how they go. Yeah, you do them in batches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You 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 do them in batches of, I think some people said six, and other people said okay. ten or twenty. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, more females are uh, lesser males and, and more females because a male encompasses three or four females territories. But you've got to have enough of each. The the proportional balance has got to be right because if you if your males all get run over or uh you know get away from the females you're not going to have breeding but over time if it's successful you're going to do more batches of of 10 or 15 or whatever and build it up if, if that needs to and yeah. see how the breeding goes so yeah well, well we'll see but i i just think it's got to be done in a very considered way with everybody on board yeah no i, I agree you can't just go uh re releasing something without consultating uh, consulting every everyone who it's going to potentially mm potentially affect well look it's been yeah. absolutely fascinating talking to you rick i think before we go um if someone has got a big cat sighting they'd like to submit to you what's the best way to to get that over to you yeah well they can just look me up on my podcast website bigcatconversations.com there's a i do a fortnightly podcast with witness reports of big cats and sometimes they're recent ones sometimes they're past ones which which because because they're raising an interesting generic point on the subject so you can email me uh, through that website. It's rick at bigcatconversations.com. I'm very happy to hear with uh, any queries or issues or questions people have on the subject, even if it's not a, uh, a witness report. But thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. No, no, it's been really interesting. I mean, it's not, I, mean I know about the whole big cats being in the UK, but I didn't know as much. So you've, you've opened my eyes to it all. And I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I was going to say be looking over my shoulder when I'm out now, but I won't be because I know it's <laughs> nothing that I should really be, be worrying about. But look, it's been an absolute pleasure and, and take care, Rick. Thank you very much indeed. That was Rick Minter of Big Cat Conversations. And I think it's fantastic that there is still some mystery in the UK. It's not all been discovered and there are things still out there potentially. So that was great. Hopefully you've enjoyed today's podcast. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll catch you in the next one. Cheers.